Have you ever been around a, a truly phenomenal storyteller? Have you ever been around someone that could weave together tales and spin together stories and capture hearts with the spoken word and with stories? Someone that you just would hang on every turn of the word and as the story would take turns and as the phrases were used and you were right there in the imaginations and you, you, were, you were vividly captured by their stories. One of, the best, one of the best storytellers I know is named Trevor. And with a name like Trevor, you've got to be a good storyteller. Trevor is, he's a little bit older than I am, but uh, he's not old enough to be my dad or even my grandpa. I, I really wish that he was, because then I could tell you about this grandfatherly figure that's a storyteller, but this isn't quite... He's, he's uh, an editor in a pretty large publication that many of you would recognize if I used the name, and he, uh, he, he can tell a story about almost any subject and somehow make them interesting. He's the kind of guy that like, you would enjoy learning about spark plugs from. He probably knows a lot about spark plugs and could tell you in ways that would just captivate you, but he also could tell you like, the best route to take through Wisconsin and Michigan and up into, the, the, up into Canada and down through New York and down into the Adirondacks, and he could tell you the right time of year to take a trip like that, and you would be captivated by it. And then he could probably tell you the best way to cook a meal over an open fire, and in fact, a lot of the stories I heard Trevor tell were around an open fire. I went on two wilderness trips with him to Utah, and, and, and there was something about listening to Trevor tell stories around a campfire at night. And to be there in nature and to hear these stories and to look up at the stars, and this guy knows how to tell stories. Ten months ago, we were going through the Gospel of John. Not the letter of John that we're going through now, but the Gospel of John. Same guy that wrote the, the, the letter that we're looking at now. And I, I, in one of those sermons, I remember telling you that I just had this image in my mind of John, that he was a master storyteller, that I just wanted to listen to him still tell stories around a fire. And the way that he would weave threads through, both in the Gospel of John and in this first letter of John, and he would just weave things together, and he would tell you these themes, and he'd come back to him over and over, and when he was done telling the story, I just had this sense that we would, only then would we begin to capture and realize and picture the, the true magnitude of what he had just told us. Oh, that's why he said this. Oh, that's how that detail fits. That was why that piece was in the story. And I just get this sense that, that, that John is this, this elderly grandfather who's, who's on a He's around a fire with his children, or maybe he's on a walk with his children, and he's just telling them, he's just, come along, walk with me. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you who God is. Let me tell you what life is like with Jesus. And, and you're, you're not, you don't really know, as you listen to John, when he's going from story into lesson, and which, which parts of the story are story, and which parts of the lessons are, are facts that you need to take home, which parts are challenges that you need to change things in your life. There's warnings. There's really strong warnings in what John has to say. And yet he's got this warm, fatherly tone that's like, if anybody's going to tell me bad news, I want it to be John. I'll listen to bad news from John. He, he's got this warm tone. Now, we're using imagination this morning. This wasn't a story told around the campfire. John wasn't on a walk with his children. We know it was a letter that somebody read. How's that for an introduction, right? Nothing I just said was true. <laughs> it wasn't around a fire, but we could, we could pretend it was, right? 
It was a letter written to his children, and he wanted them to know these things. And you just get the sense here. Here's John, who's advanced in his life, probably, and he's writing to a group of people that, that he, that, that, that he, in, in third John, he's going to call them his children, a different group of people than this was written to. And he, he over and over refers to them as my little children, my dear children. I've got things that I want you to know. And they had been living the Christian life. They've been living through some really scary stuff, some sad stuff. People, friends that they have worshipped with, people that once proclaimed the name of Christ have departed from the faith and John is saying listen listen my little children here's here's who, what you need to know about God here's what you need to know about Jesus this is this is really what it looks like to be a Christian genuine Christians these are the characteristics that are true of their lives and, and it's like he just wants to bring them along and encourage them and as he gets to the end of this book he's going to tie it all together one more time He's just going to give him a bunch of little summaries that he's going to cover a lot of what he's already covered. And you just get the sense he just wants to reassure them. He just wants to encourage them. This is what life with Jesus looks like. Here's some things life with Jesus does not look like. My little children, be encouraged. Don't lose heart. Don't accept any lesser substitutes. You get the guy that John, you get the sense that John is one of those wise, godly Christians that you, you just wish you could learn from. Teach me about the Christian life. Teach me about what it means to follow God. And so John is going to conclude his book. He's going to wrap up a lot of the things that he has said already. And this, this letter will be closed. Then next week, we look at 2 John, where he, he covers a lot of the same themes, and he writes to a, probably a church in particular. And then in a couple of weeks, Kevin will look at 3 John, where he writes to an individual and again covers a lot of the same things. So like illustrations, practical outworkings of the book. And so we'll get to look at it again one more time. But look at, look at 1 John chapter 5. As we go through this, you're going to feel a little bit like these last eight or nine verses here are all over the place. Almost like a scattergun uh, approach where John's just saying, hey, one more time, I'm going to throw it all out there and some of it's going to stick. And you might feel that this sermon is a little bit that way where it's nugget here, a nugget there. I'll try to explain the verses as we go and just drop little pieces of application along the way. And hopefully God's Spirit takes things that are helpful uh, and you can apply them to your life and other parts of it. You'll, you'll, you, uh, we'll just ask God to use what's helpful. Uh, in what applies to you, because you just get the sense you're just listening to somebody remind you, reassure you, encourage you. Here's the things you need to know. This is what life with Jesus is like. So look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is, if there was kind of a theme or a purpose verse for the book, this is it. This is why John wrote. He, he was writing to people who were believers and he wanted them to know that they had eternal life. We looked at this verse in detail, the very first message in this series. And we spent a lot of time on that verse in that particular series talking about the fact that, that John was writing with a certainty of knowledge. That he was saying, listen, you really can have confident certainty in the truth. And so I'm not going to take the time to go back and review a lot of that uh, since we already covered it in detail. But in particular, in our day and age when uncertainty of knowledge is, is viewed as a virtue, when it's, um, you're thought of well if you can ask good questions and never come to firm conclusions, 
conclusions, the biblical account of knowledge doesn't seem to square with that. John was writing so that they would have certainty of knowledge. And over and over through these eight verses, he's going to say, we know, we know, we know. This is what it really looks like. The theme of the book was that you may know. John wanted them to have certainty in the faith. And so this is the purpose of why he wrote the book. He was writing to believers. Believers who were watching false examples of what it looked like to be a Christian. They were watching people who said they were a part of the church, who said they followed Christ, but their lifestyle was one of unrepentant sin. And John's writing to say, that doesn't measure up. He was also writing to people who had changed the doctrine and were, were, they were proclaiming heresies about who Christ was. And he says, listen, that doesn't measure up. Listen, my little children, believers, you, you actually need to know that this is what eternal life looks like. He wrote his first letter. He wrote the gospel of John, I should say, that we worked through this spring. He wrote that so that unbelievers would see who Jesus was and that by believing they would have life in his name, John 20, 31. He writes this letter to believers, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote it, to build up the Christians so that they would have certainty of eternal life. He wanted them to be encouraged that this eternal life that they possessed was a real thing. It wasn't a hypothetical possibility. By the way, in the way that John writes this in the original, in the original language, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The, the original language is really neat compared to English. In English, we have three tenses primarily. We've got the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense, which helps us know when actions will take place. Well, the original language in the Greek has extra tenses built into it that even give a little bit more clarification that can help us understand a, a, a more complete picture of the image that John was trying to communicate. This verb here, when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That idea of having eternal life, the verb that he uses, is written in the tense such that right now, it's a present reality. It's a present possession. Eternal life with Jesus is right now really possessed by those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, it, 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 it's written in such a way that it's not potential, it's not future. John doesn't say, I write these things to you who believe in Jesus because one day you're going to have eternal life. He says, right now I want you to know you have eternal life. Right. And what, is, what does John say in his gospel? That eternal life is knowing who God is, right? So believer, are you here this morning? Do you think of eternal life as something that you right now presently possess? Life with Jesus is God someone that you know, that you're walking with, that you possess him, that he's right now a present reality, making a difference in the way you woke up, making a difference in how you conduct yourself through the day? As Christians, we don't wait for eternal life. There is an aspect of eternal life we wait for, yes. We're waiting for Christ to return in the full consummation of all that the gospel brings to us. But to know Christ, to be a believer, is to have eternal life now. Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. So we, we want to get to know what that's like. We want to get to know God, to experience him, to walk with him, to have that reality of knowing who God is. And that's why John wrote to us. He wanted to assure his followers in the faith, this really is the good life. This is eternal life that we have right now. And so we want to be encouraged with it. So then look at verse 14. It's... 
I guess what you could say is, if, if verse 13, if he's writing to us about eternal life, now he's going to spend the rest of the verses kind of saying, now these things will be true of your life. If, if you have eternal life, if you're truly a Christian, here's some things that are just generally, characteristically going to be true in your life. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Where does he go? He goes straight to prayer. By the way, you'll see a lot of similarities in these last eight verses as like chapters uh, 13 through 17 in John's gospel, uh, especially Jesus' instruction to his disciples in the upper room. And uh, there's very similar statements made about prayer in some of those chapters, even all the way through chapter 20. Some of the themes are going to be repeated in these verses that we look at. But where does Jesus go? He says, listen, we have confidence to come before God and to bring our requests to him. And we know that when we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Verse 15 is like a both of these things are true. If he hears us, we have what we've asked. Uh, it's, it's confident assurance. Since the one is true, we know the other is true. Now that brings up interesting considerations of what does it mean to pray in God's will? What does it mean to be praying the things that God wants for us? And I would just encourage us as a people to be praying things that are consistent with Scripture and we know that these things are true and confident of God's will for us in our lives. That's what our prayers should be focused on, wrapped around, praying the same things that Scripture prays for us as believers. Asking that God would encourage, increase our knowledge of him. That our love would abound more and more. That we as a church would build one another up in the things of scripture. In the one another commands of scripture. That we would be faithful to listen to God's word. These are the things that, that ought to dominate our prayer lives. But John's confident uh, assertion here is that when we pray according to God's will, he, he hears us and we have what we have asked of him. What a, what a great thing, that word confidence. In verse 14, this is the confidence that we have towards him. Same word in, in Hebrews when it says that we can go before the throne with boldness, Right? Uh, the, the idea here is, is that we have this confident assurance before God that, that uh, we have uh, public confidence, excuse me, courage, confidence, boldness, fearlessness. In describing it, one commentator said that it's the trait of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially that involve being honest and straightforward with attitude and speech. Do you think of your prayer life with God of ones that we just get to confidently and boldly enter God's throne and say, God, here's, here's the things that are on my heart. God, here's the things that I'm asking for. God, please do these things in our lives. This helps us understand why we need to have our prayers rooted in what the will of God is for our lives. Scripture is going to help us understand those things. The idea here is not that God is a cosmic vending machine. Right? It's not that God is a cosmic Santa Claus that we get to go to him with our wishes and if we did enough Bible reading that week and if we never miss church, then voila, we get to ask of God and he's obligated to give it to us. That's not the concept. The concept is that when our wills are aligned with God, we get to boldly enter his throne room and with prayer ask that God will do these things. And he's willing and grateful and assures us that he will accommodate these requests. 
John Stott, in speaking about prayer, says, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours, but it's the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, Your will be done. Why do we go to God as individuals and as churches in prayer? He asks us to. He, he desires this communion and fellowship and he, he knows that we need our wills shaped and bent towards His and prayer is the avenue through which we do that. Prayer is not a means of us getting what we want from God. It's a means of Him shaping our hearts to produce and accomplish in us what He desires. I would encourage you to mark on your calendars. Uh, th- by the way, things I'm saying in prayer are true of both personal prayer for us as individual Christians and then corporate prayer for us as churches. So with that in mind, I'd encourage you to mark on your calendars December 8th in the evening. We're having another corporate prayer service as a church. Why do we, why do, we do this, right? We want to come together and as a church just say, God, these are the things that we know you want for us as a church. Please do these things in our hearts and lives. Help us to be mindful of what you want as a church, God. If you haven't been able to be to one of these prayer services, I want to read for you. This is last week's prayer service. Uh, And here's the request. Here's some of the requests that we prayed for. There were several ministries or people that we got to hear from, and we just prayed towards what they shared, the ministry needs that were in their lives, some of the testimonies that were in their lives. We prayed for the preaching ministry of the Word on Sunday mornings, that whoever's standing in this pulpit, uh, that the Word would be faithfully proclaimed. We prayed for you as hearers. You were prayed for last week in your receiving and hearing of the Word, that, that God would open your hearts and you, the Spirit would sift and sort the truth so that your hearts would listen to it. We prayed that our one-anothering in the body would grow together, that, that we would be strengthened in our one-anothering relationships. Uh, we, we prayed for the year-end budgeting process, and as we try to think through uh, staff needs and as we plan towards the next year, we asked that God would, would work in that. We prayed for the elders and their shepherding ministry, and for us as elders, that we would be faithful in the responsibilities that God has to us. We prayed that our marriages would be strengthened with sacrificial Christ-like love. So if you're here, uh, a part of Shawnee Baptist Church and married, your, your marriage was prayed for last Sunday night. We prayed for those going through the Church Foundation's new members class. We prayed for the persecuted church. We prayed for those, uh, the, the Christmas and Easter season and the opportunities that we will have to both in uh, around family dinner tables, be with unsaved family, but also as a church, there will be many unsaved guests that enter the doors. And so we prayed for them. Now, we're confident that we tried to pray things that are in God's will, that, that, that God desires to bring about these good things in his children's lives. And so we want to bring them before God. We're trying in these evening prayer services to pray things that apply to the whole body, that we can all say, yes, we agree with this. We know that there's a, a, a whole nother list of individual needs in people's lives, and those things need to be prayed for as well. There are many prayer groups who pray at other times through the week for those kinds of things and individual needs in people's lives, and we're thankful that that prayer happens. But as a church, when we gather in these corporate prayer services, we're saying, God, these are the things that we believe are important in your heart. Help them to be important in our hearts. God, work for your honor and glory through your word and for these people, for the sake of your glory in South Jersey, accomplish these things in our hearts and lives. So if you could carve out time in the evening of December 8th, it's an encouraging time just to say, listen, we have confidence to go before God and say, God, this stuff needs to be important in our church. Shawnee Baptist Church, my, my brothers and sisters, if God does anything good here for his glory, we need it to be because of him and through him and for him 
Him only, and prayer is what reorients ourselves to that every time. I'm not concerned. Oh, let me not say it that way. Let me say it this way. One of my greatest concerns is, is, is accomplishing good things here at Shawnee Baptist, but not accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish. And so let's bend our will to His and say, God, for Your honor and glory, do these things. We have confidence and boldness because we're His children. And John says, my little children, uh, if you're really His, if you have eternal life, man, you have direct, bold access to His throne. And you can pray in His will. And He hears and He grants. So let's make these things important in our hearts and lives as individuals, as corporate people, as a church. Let me keep going. Now, he stays on the topic of prayer, and, and he gives a... Now, for instance, here's an illustration of prayer. So here's one of the things you might pray for, and it's a very confusing couple of verses. It's one of those that's kind of like, uh, uh, I'd rather skip right past that and not have to explain it. But we're going to make an attempt and try to see it's, it's, what is John talking about. Uh, and he says it this way. In verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death... There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What in the world is John talking about right there? So there'd be several different ways that uh, people have tried to interpret this throughout church history, and there would be some, uh, begin, beginning even with, uh, with some of the early church fathers, there were some that tried to put sins in lists, and there were the seven deadly sins, or there were the mortal and the venial sins, as some churches still teach, and the concept would be that there's, there's specific sins John is talking about, specific sins that make it on a specific list, and if it is those sins, then those are the ones that lead to death, and we don't need to pray for those. Well, I, I don't think that that's what John is talking about, a specific list of mortal and venial sins. We understand that all sin is wrongdoing. That's what John says in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. The consistent pattern of the New Testament is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9, right? We understand that when we turn from our sins, when we confess, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And yet, throughout the book, John has been concerned about sin. He's been saying, listen, there's some people who want to call themselves Christians Christians, but they're so hard-heartedly in their unrepentant nature, they're continuing in sin, and that kind of sin exposes and proves that they're not Christians, and that sin ultimately leads to spiritual death. Others would look at this and say he's simply just talking about sin that leads to physical death, so there's illness or sickness, and that's what you need to be praying for. But I think probably he's talking about spiritual sin that leads to spiritual death, consistent with the pattern that he's been writing through the book, that there's some that are so hard-heartedly rebellious, they've proved they're not Christians. They're outside the faith. That's why they left and departed from us, as Pastor Kevin emphasized a couple of weeks ago. When we confidently see that there's apostates who have left the faith, that they're hard-hearted in their rebellion or in their blasphemy against the work of who God is and what he's revealed in their lives, then John's not saying that we should be praying for them. What's he saying? He's saying there's brothers and sisters in our body. Even Christians will still sin. And when we see that, we should pray for them. We should come together and ask God, God, please, for your, for your glory, work in this person's life. Pray. We should make the, the spiritual lives of one another 
should make our prayer list as a church. Then also notice, and depending, your translation may or may not bring this out depending on what specific translation you are reading from, uh, but in verse 17, he shall ask, it's future tense, meaning he will ask and God will give him life. So, so the idea here is not, as, as John Stott said, it expresses not the writer's command, but the Christian's inevitable and spontaneous reaction. The way to deal with sin in the congregation is to pray, and God hears such a prayer. What a beautiful illustration of the confidence that we have to come before God and to say, listen, listen, if you are a Christian and you see brothers who, who you are confident they're Christians and they're walking in, pray, pray, pray that God brings them back, that he brings them to repentance. And we have confidence and assurance before God that he desires to do these works. What joy that we can bring these requests before God. It's what we ought to do. It's the spontaneous, it's the natural reaction. This is what life with Jesus looks like. Life with Jesus doesn't look like Christians who see other Christians in sin and they pick up the phone and start gossiping. Life with Jesus doesn't look like Christians who see Christians in sin and they pick up stones and start casting. Life with Jesus looks like, like Christians who see brothers in sin and they start praying. They say, God, work. Work for your honor and glory. What a beautiful thing. We know that. We have that confidence. That's what life with Jesus looks like. Let's keep going then. What else does life with Jesus look like? Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. He comes back to this pattern. He's consistently talked about this several times, that true Christians, if you genuinely follow Christ, you won't continually walk in unrepentant, rebellious sin. Now, he's not saying that true Christians get to perfection. He's not, some of your Bibles may not bring out that translation very well, where uh, this translation does a good job of saying, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a great translation where some of yours may just say, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Uh, it's better to have that understanding of this continual, unrepentant, rebellious nature. And he's saying, listen, true Christians don't keep walking in unrebellious sin, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, you've got two phrases, two uses of the, of the verb or the phrase, born of God. So he who has been born of God, and then in the middle of the verse, he who was born of God. There's some confusion there, or even some different understandings in how to translate that. The first, obviously, is that we know that everyone who has been born of God, and so the tense of the verb that is used there very clearly helps us understand that it's talking about an action that was completed in the past but has continuing effects into the present. So it's this, it's this uh, uh, verb which helps us understand that even though it's an action in the past, the effects continue on into the present. That's for those of us who are Christians. If we came to faith in Jesus Christ, at some point in the past we trusted in Jesus Christ, we know that we're, because of that we've now been born of God and that continuing relationship is going to help us understand uh, uh, that continuing relationship is going to help us turn from sin and not continue on in sin. Why? Who is it that that works on our behalf. It's the one who was born of God. So is that talking about the believer? Do we keep ourselves or is that the one who, is that Christ himself? And in this particular instance, the way the verb is used, it's talking about an action that is once for all finally completed. Uh, even outside of time, Christ was born of God, not in the sense that he was the created offspring of God, but in the sense that he's the eternal son of God and always has been, and he's the one that keeps and protects us. And he's the one that, that uh, 
He's the one that provides that, that security from sin. Wow, how joyful is that? How good is that? That life with Jesus looks like when I've been born of God, the one who's eternally the Son of God is keeping me. How good is that? This is what life with Jesus looks like. I don't want to continue in sin. When, when God in His graciousness through the Holy Spirit exposes sin in my life, well, I want to turn. I want to repent. That's the goodness of the one who is eternally the Son of God working to expose that sin in my life. Uh, the, the evil one can't touch those who are truly born of God. And John's been consistent throughout this letter that those who continually practice rebellious sin can't call themselves Christians. He's been consistent with those themes. Well, there's another thing that life with Jesus looks like, and it's here in verse 19. He says this, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Christians really are from God. They're they're the light. They're the children of God, as John has been saying throughout the book. And yet the rest of the world, those who aren't believers, they they lie in the power of the evil one. Listen, do 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 you realize this? Do you see this? Do you know what life with Jesus is like? It's dangerous. We really are in a supernatural war. There really is good and evil. There really is an evil one who holds the whole world in his power. Now, as Christians, does that make us cower in fear? Do we lock ourselves in our doors? Do we never associate with anyone who's of the world? Well, no. No, 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 no. We are from God. The evil one can't touch us, remember? Uh, it's not that we're sinless perfection, but that, that the, when the Spirit works in our lives, He opens our eyes and we repent of our sin, but the evil one can't touch us. We're from God. The rest of the world, they're the ones that lies in the power of the evil one. So, so he, he, here's what John's saying. There's a clear line of distinction between Christians and the world, between believers and unbelievers, between light and darkness. And listen, which one is it that's under bondage? It is the evil ones who are the world who's under the power of the evil one. So, so little children, brothers and sisters, one of the things that this wise, godly man is trying to encourage people with, we're, we're from God. Christians are the one who truly have life, eternal life. It's the world that lies under the power of the evil one. I particularly want to talk to teenagers, but this applies to all of us throughout. You, you will be tempted, teens. At times, you look, you look at, at friends who don't call God their God, who don't try to live under the instruction of the world, and you'll be tempted to say, wow, that looks like life. The, the ability to make my own choices, the ability to run my own life, how empowering is that? That looks like freedom. That looks like the good life. What if I didn't have to submit to God's rules for sex? What if I could use money in any way that I wanted? What if I could acquire money in any way I wanted? What if I could abuse drugs and alcohol to live the good life? Is that where true freedom is found? And you will find over and over, it's an illusion. That life is under the power of the evil one. And, and this room is filled with people who could come alongside you, young person, and say, I lived it, I tried it. It's bondage to the evil one. It doesn't satisfy. It's an illusion. 
And John says, we're the ones who are from God. It's the evil world that actually, it's the world who lies under the power of the evil one. So Christians, it ought to cause us, our hearts ought to break when we see people in bondage of the evil one. We ought not sit inside our holy huddles and cast stones at those who haven't had their eyes open to the truths. Our hearts ought to break and say they don't, they don't get it. They're, they're, they're held captives by lies. They've, they've bought a bill of goods that cannot deliver on its promises. And so let us, let us have compassion. And as a people and as a church, be ready to receive people that, that God opens their eyes to the illusion of the lies they've bought. There will be people who are refugees. Let's so take the example of the sexual revolution that we are living under currently in these decades. And the, 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 in terms of what defines a marriage, who can marry who, uh, in terms of gender confusion, in terms of marriage being in God's intended design, one man and one woman for a lifetime in a soul relation, in a completely committed relationship covenantally to one another. That there's no room for sexual activity outside that covenantal relationship and yet the world is confused in chaos that well maybe if we can step outside of God's boundaries that will bring joy and life and freedom and listen there are those that have that that revolution that ideology has sold a, sold a false bill of lies that it cannot deliver on and I don't know if it will take years or decades. Some will not see the truth until the next life. But there will be people who, like refugees, come out of that movement and they need to know the truth. And we as a church need to be ready to receive them, to encourage them with the truth of who God is, and to love them with the, Christ, with, with the power of Christ. So next, on December 8th, one of the things we're going to pray for is that we as a church would be ready to love refugees who are coming out of the sexual revolution, who have had their eyes opened to the truth that, that, that the lies they bought ultimately will fail in that delivered promise. Amen. Young people, why, why are your parents faithfully trying to teach you the instructions and rules of the Bible? We, why do we as a church try to help you understand uh, patterns for living and expectations of a Christian? It's not because uh, we are trying to keep you from the good life. No, it's, it's because we, we stand on the backs of those who have gone before us and say, we, we understand where eternal life starts. It, it's the world that lives under the power and influence of the evil one, and we don't want that bondage for you. So if I could encourage you, this is not Grandpa sitting here trying to crush down the fun in your life. This, this is the wise, fatherly one who's saying, this is what the good life looks like. This is really eternal life. Uh, we're not from, we, we are from God. We don't continue in sin as a people, and that's really what leads to life and flourishing. Let's keep going. There's one more thing then that he tries to help us understand in verse 20. He says this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Before I get to that second verse, let's key in on the first verse. Both of these verses go together. But here's another thing we confidently know. Here's what we can have assurance of, that the, the Son of God has come. Jesus came, and not only did he come to accomplish redemption on the cross, but he has also given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. So God, through the person of Christ, accomplishes both redemption 
and revelation, as one commentator put it. Where does the understanding come from? If you're a believer, why did you have your eyes open to the truth of who God was? Because He gave you understanding so that you could see this is the truth. In God's sovereign power, how much did you contribute to your salvation? Well, let me ask it this way. Those of you that were born of your mom and dad in an earthly sense, how much did you have to do with your birth? Not very much in a physical sense or at all, right? In a spiritual sense, why did we have our eyes and hearts opened? Why did we receive understanding? Why have we been born of God? Because the Son of God came and gave us understanding. What glorious truths. Let us not be arrogant people. Let us be people who, who revel in the truth of who God is and say, wow, that he, would, that he would open my eyes to the truth of who he is, that he would give me understanding. Oh, God, for your glory, do that for others here in this community. Give them understanding to see that you are the true God. Let, let that ring true in our hearts because, because we want to know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you possess eternal life, what is it? It's, it's God. It's the knowledge of him. It's the conformity to him. That's what eternal life looks like. And then he closes with this little statement. Little children or dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And there would be that sense if we were gathered around a campfire tonight and John were telling this, I'm confident that when he said, little children, guard yourselves from idols, the fire would crack with like the loudest crack of the evening and the embers would float into the air and we would all be lost following the sparks and we would come back and John would be gone. We'd say, where was he? And by the way, what in the world does having to keep ourselves from idols have to do with anything he's talked about in the whole book, right? Well, obviously, this has nothing to do with the campfire, so that's not the way it played out. He wrote it as a letter. They heard it in the letter. Of everything he said, why all of a sudden throw in idols? Like, where does that come from, right? So let that question hang, and we'll come back to it for just a second. Uh, but I want you to see something else in the book, uh, in the verse. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Do you see the admonition to us as believers? Keep yourselves. Responsibility rests on you. Don't turn to idols. Go back to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Two different words for keep, but some of your Bibles translate them the same way. And concept, what's happening in verse 18? God keeps us, right? Christ keeps us from the evil one. What's happening in verse 21? You, work, keep yourselves from idols. It's the exact same way played out in the book of Jude. So if you just flip like a page or two towards the back of the book, go past 2 John and 3 John, and Jude is the very next book. And if you look at verse 17, there's this call to perseverance that Christians need to work to keep themselves. He says this, but, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Look at verse 19 of Jude. It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoted of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Christians are supposed to take an alternate path. They're supposed to be building themselves up. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. 
waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Where does it seem like the onus of responsibility is? On the Christians. They need to keep themselves. They need to be working diligently. They need to be doing contrary to what the unbelievers are doing or to the ungodly. But then come down to verse 24, just two verses later. You hear me close our service with these verses frequently. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever amen we're supposed to guard ourselves keep ourselves protect ourselves and we're being kept by the one who will not let us stumble how glorious is that truth but it's both and it's not either or it's a both end and we know that the ultimate assurance of our salvation the ultimate preservation of our souls is in the one who holds us in the father's hand he holds us in his hand. He is in the Father's hand, and no one will be able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. And so we rejoice in those truths as Christians. But we don't sit back on our laurels and just do nothing and say, well, then why does I live? There's no, there's no cause to avoid sin in life. No, we need to keep ourselves. We need to be vigilant. We need to be careful. John's telling us, my little children, keep yourselves. This really is dangerous. You've watched some depart from the faith. You've watched some who didn't repent of their sins. You've watched some who claimed to be Christians, and they didn't, live, they didn't love other Christians. And you know what all those things are? They're idolatrous substitutions of life with Jesus. What is an idol? Well, we're all familiar with carved images and um, idols that are made of stones or wood that, that represent a false deity. But there's another sense where an idol is, is a false substitution of the genuine reality. Romans 1 seems to talk about that, that... that, that uh, in our sin and rebellion against God, that we exchanged the worship of God for images resembling mortal man. That we exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of creation. And therefore, anything less than true reality and truly who God is would be an idol. And I think John's been writing for five chapters now to say, these are idols. They're not real. They're counterfeits. If you say you're a Christian and don't love other Christians, that's counterfeit. Idolatrous. If you say you're a Christian and, and, and you're espousing false theology and heretical doctrine, that's an idol. It, it's not the real genuine thing. If you say you're a Christian and you're walking in unrebellious, unrepentant, continual sin, well, that's an idol. And John says, listen, this is the good life. Keep yourself from anything less. Any other substitute won't fit. So church, this is who Jesus is. John wrote to tell us, the other writers of the New Testament, let's keep ourselves from anything less than that. Be encouraged that our faith really is real. It really is genuine. It does make an impact in our lives. And John wanted to encourage us with it. You might be here this morning, and as you've listened, whether you walked in this morning uh, for the first time, for the first time in a long time, perhaps you've been here for weeks and you've been hearing us explain to believers this is what life with Jesus looks like. And you may realize, I don't have a relationship with God you realize that your sin keeps you separated from God. And what is it that you need? You need to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. That, 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 that our sin separates us from God and the only thing that provides salvation or can make our relationship right with God is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. That, that he came to this earth as God's son and died on the cross to provide payment for sins. That, that he lived a perfect and sinless life because you and I couldn't. And his blood was shed and his body was broken so that you and I could have a right relationship with God. And scripture says that when we call on the name of the Lord, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we, 
when we confess those truths to be true, that we find salvation, eternal life, forgiveness. And that's what we invite you to this morning. You can do that where you're seated. Certainly speak to one of us afterwards if that needs to be true in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for who you are as God and grateful that John wrote to encourage us that this really is true, that life with Jesus really does make a difference in our lives, that it encourages us, teaches us about who you are. Help us to be people whose lives look like they've been impacted with the person of Jesus Christ, that we love other Christians, that we walk in obedience, that we believe the right things about Jesus. All of this should result in confidence and boldness before you. Father, thank you for that access to your throne room. Do these things in our hearts and lives. Please, Father, for your glory, work in our lives, work in our church, draw other people to yourself. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.